When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to The Real Birth Podcast, the show where real parents share real birth stories and get really honest about how it went. You might be a first-time expectant parent, or on your eighth baby. Perhaps you're a birth worker, or maybe you just love learning about birth. Whoever you are, you are welcome here. This podcast aims to educate and empower listeners through the real stories of mums and dads. I'm Lucy Hill. I'm a doula, a mum of a toddler, and a complete birth nerd. Join me as I invite all kinds of parents to share their stories of pregnancy, birth and beyond. I hope you enjoy this week's episode. This season is sponsored by Bridge House Pilates. Finding the time to work on your physical strength and fitness after having a baby can be a huge challenge, which is why Pilates teacher Megan decided to set up an online, on-demand postnatal Pilates course. The programme can be accessed at any time from anywhere and is designed with busy new parents in mind. Each week is broken down into five bite-sized videos lasting anywhere between 5 and 15 minutes and the platform will even track your progress if you get interrupted partway through a video. You can get an exclusive 20% off the whole course by clicking on the link in my Instagram bio, Facebook posts or in the show notes of the podcast or by going to bridgehousepilates.com and signing up to the postnatal course using the code REALBIRTH20. And I should probably mention that signing up grants you lifetime access to all the course materials, meaning you can return to your Pilates exercises time and time again, no matter how many pregnancies you might have in future. So sign up today for your exclusive discount of 20% using the code REALBIRTH20. Hello everyone, welcome back to another episode. This week I'm really honoured to have as my guest Maha Al Musa, a childbirth educator based in Australia. Maha travels the world teaching her work, which is the Embodied Birth Programme, and she encourages women to claim their power and lean into their birthing experiences. Maha's story is an incredible one. Not only does she share the story of her childhood and her three births, one of which was a home birth at age 46, but she also goes into incredible detail about her work as a birth activist when she went viral for breastfeeding her daughter longer than society deemed acceptable and about her embodied birth business now going online. This episode feels a bit different to my usual birth story format, but in a really wonderful way. Listening to Maha speak about her work is like listening to the wise woman that you never knew you needed in your tribe. I really hope you love it as much as I do. Thank you so much for joining me on the podcast today. It is such a pleasure to have you with me. Before we start, I wondered if you could just tell me and the listeners a little bit about you, what it is you do, and also who's in your family. Sure. Well, hi, everybody. Thanks, Lucy, for having me. My name is Maha Al Musa. And I've been a childbirth educator, a founder of Embody Birth and Belly Dance Birth since 1997. I'm in my 26th year. I'm also number one, a mother to three beautiful children. My sons are 22 and 25, and I have a daughter who's 13, and I'll be 60, as I was telling you, in 10 days. <laughs> so I had her at home at 46. Wow. And that's my beautiful family. I'm from Palestinian Lebanese origin. It's my background. My father was Palestinian, my mother Lebanese, and I was actually born in Kuwait. Mm. And I came to Australia as a two-year-old with my father. Very unusual story. Yeah, my mum was a Lebanese air hostess in the 1950s. And my dad started Kuwait Airways in the 1950s. So that was the time when the Middle East and Lebanon was the Paris of the Mediterranean, mm. an amazing place. Everybody wanted the Lebanese passport and the Lebanese pound. And, you know, it was an, an amazing place at the time. Mm. So my parents married and then separated. So I was a six-month-old baby and my dad kidnapped me from my mum, yes, and came to Australia, as mentioned, in 1964 when mm. I was a two-year-old. 
So that was a very, very big story of separation from the mother. Yeah. Prior to having your own children, what was your preconceived ideas of kind of childbirth and motherhood and pregnancy? And what was your frame of reference there? And I imagine having that separation from your mother must have had an impact on that journey. Absolutely. Well, I was at boarding school when I was four. And um, now when I look back, I don't know how I survived a year at boarding school on my own. Mm. Um, But when my dad came to Australia when I was two, he didn't marry until I was seven. So I essentially had seven years of not having a mother. And then he married an Australian woman who became my stepmom. And uh, so I did have a reference in relation to her, but I was severed from my roots, my maternal roots, that maternal vocabulary, that mother within that motherland, that mother tongue. And I was also separated from my Palestinian roots. So my father was a refugee in 1948. We lost everything in Palestine. So I had a very strong connection psychically to my dad's mother, whose name is Amina. I called my daughter Amina after her. And I had known that she had birthed all her babies in our family birthing house in Palestine we had our own birthing house which I just absolutely loved yeah that story amazing amazing in a town called Al-Kubab the domes which no longer exists but I knew that she'd birthed her babies there and she breastfed all her nine children for two years each so she breastfed for 18 years and so I was very deeply connected to those roots, especially the Palestinian roots, my paternal roots. And I always just intuitively knew that birth was not something to be feared and birth was not something you need to go to the hospital for. Mm. So that's what I envisaged for myself, although I didn't think a lot about giving birth until I actually found my mum, so I'm skipping forward now, At the age of 27, I started looking for my mum and my dad had given me a very small passport black and white photo of her when I was about 16, 17. And I'd never seen a photo of her ever in all of my childhood. My dad never talked about her. It was one of those hidden stories. Mm. And um, from this photo at 27, I went to the Lebanese consulate in Sydney, Australia, And I said, I want to look for my mum in Lebanon. I knew she was Lebanese. And he said, we don't do this sort of search. And I said, well, I want you to do this search. (laughs) And uh, sitting at this big wooden desk in this palatial room, you know, and he was like, oh, okay. When I told him the story, he said, it's a very unusual story. I said, I know, I'm in the story. (laughs) So anyway, it took five years. And actually she was found in Beirut in Lebanon. Yeah, wow. a bit of a story to get there. I won't go into it. But yes, I got a phone call from her. And I often tell this story because the week before she was found, I got a phone call. I was dancing around my lounge room um, with a shaved head. It was 1995. <laughs> I was 33 or 32, 32 and a half. And the phone rang and I picked up the phone and the voice said, Maha, is that you, Maha? And I'd had a dream a week before of a woman's voice saying, Maha, is that you, Maha? And I knew in that instant it was my mum. It was the most amazing feeling after, yeah, over 32 years. So my brother and I went to Lebanon a year and a half later uh, to meet her. And that was an amazing, amazing meeting. You can imagine. I was 33. She was 67. She'd had me at 34. So it was very beautiful to reconnect with her. Very strange, very weird to see photos of her and my dad, all these wedding pictures and yeah. photos of when she was young. I'd never seen any pictures except that one black and white photo and had been told nothing about her. But I always knew there was a little flame burning inside of my heart for my mum, mm. a little candle flame, you know. So that was beautiful. And uh, we were very similar in many ways, very strong woman. And I felt her strength. And I've got a lot of strength from her and from my grandmother too. So um, that was amazing to meet her. And I had been trying to get pregnant for five years. Wow, right? okay. my mom. Yes. So I'd been told you've got polycystic ovaries. 
which we now know is related to insulin resistance, metabolic syndrome. And in those days, they didn't really know that. And I always felt it was an emotional disconnection from my mother, the mother mm. within. Yeah, that's what I intuitively felt, that it wasn't really physical as such, but it started from an emotional symptom of loss and separation and severance. So I knew that. And after meeting my mum, I really felt that something had been repaired. So that gap had been closed. And what do you think happened when I came back from Lebanon? <laughs> I got pregnant with my first son, my beautiful son, Kailash, who oh, wow. is five. Yeah. And the other funny story about that is he was, his dad was English. So I had actually been married before that and then married again. So in that five years, and then I got pregnant to Kailash's dad, who was English. He was from Yorkshire, actually. And we came to England and we thought, let's just let go of everything and go traveling around the world to Morocco and Spain and Paris and all these beautiful places. And of course, I arrive in England in a basement flat. <laughs> <laughs> and within two weeks, I was pregnant. Wow. Six months after meeting my mum, five years after trying to get pregnant. So I was so ecstatic, absolutely ecstatic. And we actually got married in England. And we sat, we actually got married on top of Glastonbury Tour. Oh, wow. Yeah, at dawn. That's just around the corner from me, actually. (laughs) Really? Wow. And at dawn on the morning, the next morning, we sat in Stonehenge in the rocks Mm. when you were allowed to sit in the rocks where you were just applied and for 10 pounds you could go and sit in the (sighs) centre of the rocks, yeah. And I was wishing that I was pregnant, not knowing that I was six weeks pregnant with Kailash. So I was making all these prayers and everything to be pregnant. So that was a pretty amazing when I found out. And okay. that was an incredible blessing and a surprise and a shock. Yeah, what yeah. an amazing journey, though, to, to yeah. kind of having your own motherhood experience. So after healing your, your ancestral motherhood mm. journey there. I'd really love to talk about your the birth of your daughter, actually. I know that you had her at home and you had quite a gap between your two sons and your daughter. Do you want to just briefly talk about your two sons' birth before, just for sort of context of what your birth experience had mm. been before you had your home birth with your daughter? Well, Kailash, my first son that I was just talking about mm. that I got pregnant with, he actually was born six weeks prematurely okay. and I had planned to have a home birth with him with a home birth midwife. This was 1996. Mm-hmm. And I lived in a beautiful place in Australia called Byron Bay. Many people mm. from all over the world know this place. And it was an Aboriginal women's um, birthing place. They have a beautiful tea tree lake there. So it's very much a meeting and birthing place ancestrally for the Bundjalung nation. And um, so we had this all planned. We had a beautiful um, pregnancy support group that really supported home births. We had about 12 midwives to choose from. So you as the mother would interview the midwives. It was amazing. Wow. It was how it's meant to be, mother, baby centred. <laughs> so that was beautiful. But he was born six weeks prematurely and, you know, quite a surprise to me. But what was interesting about his birth, it was all natural or as nature intended, as we say in embodied birth. And he was helicoptered away from me after birth, about 10 hours after birth. And I realised in that experience that I was taken from my mother and then my son was taken away from me. Mm. And I felt there was a connection again, more repair work to be done. And a funny thing about that story was that five or six years after his birth, I was looking through my passport of when I was a baby of two when I came to Australia and I just happened to be looking in the passport and I saw a stamp in the passport and the date that I had arrived in Australia was the 4th of December. What date was my son born? Six weeks premature? 4th of December. And I went, there it is. So again, was that understanding that there's a mystery to these stories, my story that we cannot control Mm. part of that maternal lineage that we alchemize, we repair, we heal, we celebrate so many aspects to this whole journey. It's not just black and white. So that was an amazing experience. 
Then my second son, I got pregnant about two and a half years later or two years and three months. And I had a beautiful home water lotus birth with him, Tarek. It was absolutely a beautiful divine birth, as was my first. But he was born two weeks early, but born at home. Mm. So and did you did you those... have that that team that you'd carefully picked and the experience that you'd wanted? You managed to yes. have that one at home. Fantastic. Well, fantastic. Yes, I did. And I I again went back to that um, pregnancy support group, and then I've been connected with that group for a few years now. So I met many more midwives, and I was very interested in birth work because when my son, my first son, was six months of age, I started teaching belly dance birth classes. Yes, in 1997. Mm. So I was very connected to pregnancy and birth. It was like a doorway had opened to my cultural roots and to the roots of birth. So with Tariq, I had another beautiful as nature intended birth, but this time at home in the water in a little cottage on a community. Mm. And it was absolutely beautiful with a home birth midwife. And we are best friends now, (laughs) 25 years later. I separated from his dad. When the boys were four and seven. And then when I was about 43 and a half, I met my daughter's father. So I had my first son at 34. So, you know, we're talking nearly 10 years later. And um, we ended up having a baby together, um, which was incredible because I'd had an early birth at 43 and a half, actually. Um, seven weeks, I had an early birth. And then I got pregnant at 45 and a half. I was extremely healthy. Mm. I was on the low GI diet, which we now know for polycystic ovaries and insulin resistance and metabolic syndrome. It's a fantastic diet for getting pregnant if you're Mm. having a problem. So I'd lost a lot of weight between when I'd had the boys and put on weight postnatally. And um, I was, you know, amazingly healthy. My daughter's dad and I as I said, got pregnant um, Mm. at 45 and a half. And I was just ecstatic to think that I was going to have another baby. (laughs) And I was very healthy, yes. Yeah. And did you approach the birth support team and did they have any kind of reservations? Because I know that in the UK, certainly, as soon as you're over 35, let alone anywhere near 40, it's just alarm bells, alarm bells, alarm bells, and everything suddenly has to be treated as if you're made of China or something. So did you have any kind of pushback or experience of that based purely on your age? Because I came from Byron Bay and because I birthed two babies before, I'm also, as founder of Embody Birth, Belly Dance Birth, I'm teaching, counselling, working with pregnant women. I know my body. I know my body is strong. I got pregnant at 45 and a half. Why could I not birth at 46? Mm. There's no reason why. There was nothing wrong with me. So, you know, my boys were now 8 and 11. Mm -hmm. So that was the gap between them and my daughter and you know it just was no necessity to go down the medical road and I remember going to see the doctor just for the blood test because you need to see the doctor I've always had a bit of low iron and he said oh my gosh you you know you're nearly 46 you'll be 46 you need to book into the hospital and I looked him in the eye and I said how about this for an idea doc how about if everything goes right because he was saying things could go wrong. Mm. And I said, why don't we start with the possibility that everything could go right and we elevate ourselves from that place? And I said, there's another thing. I know what I am doing as a mother. Nine words that terrify the medical system that you know what you are doing. How could that be possible? (laughs) that you know what you are doing. And if I need assistance, if I need guidance, if I need a test result or any of that, the medical system in my eyes is a resource. That resource is there for me. But I stand at the centre with my baby. That is our number one principle that I teach in Embodied Birth. Baby are the experts and are at the centre of the experience. And we rob women every single day of the week Mm. of this most sacred ceremonial initiation rite of passage. I won't allow that for myself. Look at the maternal lineage I come from, home birth, strong women, capable. It's not saying that things don't go wrong. Things can, but we don't start with that premise in the embodied birth philosophy. We start with the premise that I am at the centre with my baby 
what is the possibility of this experience and my vision? And if I need assistance, and if there is something that needs to be taken care of, I can seek out those who are professionally trained to help me, mm. if that is so, you know, I, I found a home birth midwife. She was very happy to be my midwife because I was fine. Everything was fine. My daughter was fine. And in the work that I do in body birth and belly dance birth, when we dance and when we move into the body in these intuitive, spontaneous, improvisational movements of belly dance birth, we connect and we access and we activate our inner wisdom for birth because I am the expert. I'm carrying this baby, not somebody else. I grew this baby. I know this baby implicitly. And this is what I teach. I have to be an example and a role model of what I teach women, what I've taught for the last 26 years. Mm. So I have to walk that path and teach from that place. And if something happens to, you know, take a detour or go into a mysterious place, I follow that. And that's what we learn in Embody Birth. Mm. We follow whatever arises with confidence and strength because we are the expert. Yeah, her birth was so a very beautiful birth. Do you remember how labour started for that birth? Was that kind of a moment that you remember or was it a gradual beginning of labour? How did it go? Well, I actually went into labour the day before. I actually had a little bit of acupuncture, Japanese acupuncture. Okay, yes. Yeah, not that I was intending to bring the labour on, but it was more just for, you know, keeping me well, the well-being, keeping my body in a good place. I'd been having a little bit of acupuncture. The next day I actually had some early labour and I was at the Aboriginal Women's Tea Tree Lake and I'm circling and I'm dancing in the forest next to the river leaning against the tree and I'm just in that early labor connecting with nature my feet rooted to mother earth feeling my baby and coming inward access that wisdom so we often say in body birth if you want to birth as nature intended connect to the nature that lives within and the nature that lives out here so that's how it started in a very gentle beautiful way and I do remember I went home and vacuumed yeah yep <laughs> yes then I started tidying up the room the bedroom yeah and we had the pool ready and all of that but it was very gentle and that evening um actually the boys were at their dad so I was just there with um, Amina's dad and I woke up at about six the next morning I could feel more of the expansions as we call them in body birth Mm-hmm. uterus contracts but my body my energetic my emotional my physical my psychic body expands so I could feel those gentle expansions called my midwife and she said she would be there and I just gently went about the morning got up went for a walk you know sun rising beautiful I was living on a beautiful community and um, in nature and it was a very beautiful, gentle day. And it was an eight-hour labour. You know, I, I had the times when I was in that transition into, you know, fully dilated, ready to open, where I was, you know, going deep down into that underworld, having to excavate deeply through the layers of my psyche and my consciousness. Mm. And uh, I tell a story in my training about what happened in that but what I recognised in my daughter's birth, what it really affirmed to me is that birth is about raising consciousness. Birth is about dancing through the layers of love, mm. which means we have to face the deepest part of ourself that may not look like love, that may look like difficult times, grief. You know, there's joy in there too. But it's not all, you know, sunshine and roses when we give birth, but we are meant to go deep down into those psychic places. To yeah, I actually feel like I, I remember it's, it's almost like I felt like I folded 
inside mm. when I was in labor with my son and it's almost like I couldn't hear anything I couldn't there was nothing about the outside world at that particular moment that was of any significance I was so so deep inside myself that nobody could have pulled me out in that moment and yeah I really I really kind of can go back there almost now that feeling of being so so within myself yeah you mentioned about kind of going through that transition period which I know kind of a lot of people will mention in their birth stories obviously it sounds like you have such an incredible connection to your yourself and your body and your baby and having that true true confidence of knowing that your body is capable of doing this when you reach that kind of difficult stage of transition did you ever have those moments of feeling like I can't do this this the doubt you know the kind of those moments of feeling like this may maybe this is too hard or was there that real deep inner strength that you had cultivated forever that was just there Mm -hmm. reminding you I drew on the strength of the women who came before me I knew my grandmother did this my great-grandmother my great-great-grandmother so I drew on that thread of my maternal lineage and that gave me a lot of strength And you've got to remember, too, when you're having a spontaneous, unmedicated, physiological mammalian birth, you're releasing those beautiful endorphins, oxytocin, that holds you like a wave in that place. So you go, you ride that wave, and I rode those waves. And I say it's like walking on the precipice between life and death, because a part of us dies to be born again and because I understood that I knew that it was of utmost importance for me as a mother to ride those deep waves of difficulty and not give up because that's the strength we take into the postpartum that's the strength that fights for my children that's the strength that advocates as a tiger don't come near my children We are meant to go there. The power in that is so immense that the system cannot handle that. Imagine if every woman was implicitly supported to go down into those primal, primordial layers and come up the other side, which is what transition Mm. is in many ways. Imagine the world, Lucy, what a different world we would have the consciousness of the world we women would not hand our children over for anybody it is terrifying actually just not not just on the podcast but in general the amount of people that I speak to who either didn't know what transition was before they went into their births or when they kind of were in that stage of birth where they were going very very deep inside or you know all those kind of fears were being unearthed in that moment of transition that that nobody else was able to recognize that that was happening. And there, those are moments that big decisions should not be made <laughs> because they're being made through fear from those dark places that don't feel good and maybe you don't see as positive. And I, I do feel like it's such a shame we need to be making people so, so aware that that, that is part of labor and to encourage people like you say to explore that and to go down into that place rather than have it suddenly happen to them and to be terrified and to I can't do this anymore you know and now now's when I make a decision that I know is is not what I really want it's not really me exactly and the elephant in the room is actually the birth professionals the caregivers Mm -hmm. so we lack patience we lack compassion we lack understanding we do not value the experience of birth from a mother-baby perspective in the way that we should. And that is why, as I said, women are constantly robbed. My teachings in Embodied Birth have taught all of this for 26 years. This is what my programs teach. And so we give reassurance. We bring strength to the mother. But also it needs to be brought to those who are supporting her. Because those who are supporting her must see this as an experience of the greatest, highest, honourable order. She wears the crown. She is at the centre with her baby. Everything revolves around her Mm. and everything needs to be focused on creating that soft landing, that security, that safety 
for her emotional and psychic world to be able to express. And if she is expressing those emotions, what often happens is the people around want to dampen it, want to put a stop to it, mm-hmm. want to medicate her. So if we look at the experience as a pathology, as pregnancy, as an illness, as birth, we've just got to get that baby out and we disregard the honour and the honourability of the actual experience from a sacred lens, then we're never going to be able to hold her in those places. And that's what she needs in that vulnerability is people who understand, not people who want to sever her from the experience because they can't handle the Mm. intensity of it. And there's such um, such a culture of rushing of just, well, if we do this, it will be over quicker or your baby will be here faster if we do this. And actually, I've seen people where on their maternity notes, maybe a reason given for whatever intervention was failure to progress. And that is often the term that is used. And I've seen people cross it out and say failure to wait. The system has failed to just wait and allow time to pass and for it not to be the worst thing in the world that this is extended by however many hours that mother and that baby needs. There's just such a culture of rush, 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 turn around, turn around, um, which really fails to to honour somebody's process that maybe they need to go through. Exactly right. Failure to understand the value of the birth experience. And that's the where the problem is. Because we don't value it again as mm. being you know, an initiation as in a ceremony. And they think when we talk like this, that what are you talking about? It's a language that a lot of people don't even understand that birth could be such an experience of raising consciousness for humanity because the imprint of how we are born and how mother's birth permeates the whole world on a global scale. And that's my work. My work is big. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. I do wonder yeah. kind of how how different the whole world would be, society, individual, communities, but globally as well. How different things would be if we all saw birth as something to be honored and to be desired to be to want to experience it and how differently people would feel after they'd had their babies and the impacts the long-term impacts of their mental health and then that on their children and then that on their communities and their future ability to feel like valued members in their communities and all that kind of rippling effect that having a beautiful positive birth can have so Yeah, I think it's amazing work that you're doing. Mm, Thank you. It's transformational. And so instead of being disabled from the experience, we become enabled and we would not have the level of fear and anxiety imprinted in societies worldwide if we got birth beautifully understood and we truly supported the heart of women and babies and we gave birth back to them. To me, that is maternal feminism. That is the freedom. It's not just an individual freedom or an individual free birth, which is beautiful. It is beautiful. It's fantastic. But we go a step deeper in embodied birth. Freedom belongs to all women in birth, not just me on an individual level. And that's what I advocate for. That is why I'm entering nearly my three decades as a childbirth educator because that's what I want to see. 
That's why I keep going because I want all women to be free in birth. Wow. Yeah. So I wanted to jump back actually a little bit and kind of ask, so you, so your, your birth with your daughter went really well. Um, Did you kind of have any complications or anything following that, or was it just really simple for you afterwards? Well, like everyone, we have the postnatal time. And because I had, you know, an eight and 11 year gap, almost nine and 12 years, I had to adjust to having a newborn. And, you know, you think you remember everything. Every (laughs) baby's different. (laughs) And um, I was determined to breastfeed her. Mm. I breastfed my boys for two years, but I was determined to breastfeed to natural term. I'd heard about natural term breastfeeding. So I really wanted to establish that, which we did when she was born in the water. We didn't get out of the water for about an hour after her birth. Yeah, and I birthed the placenta and then we just drained and wrapped placenta and um so you know we had a very beautiful postnatal time I probably had too many visitors okay straight up yeah I felt that I think if I did that again I probably would wait you know maybe five days minimum Mm. um but everybody was so excited that I had a baby at 46 they all wanted to (laughs) and uh, and I did have people bringing meals but everyone wanted to come and have a look so I think you know having that space and time for connection Mm. um is a really really important but yes we breastfed and you know I had my boys to look after as well mm. so you know the family dynamics every baby we have obviously the family dynamic changes so you don't just have the luxury of being with one yes you know, you've got the two three five six however that looks so you adjust to that and um yeah, but she was she cried a bit in the first six weeks and then I had a craniosacral adjustment with her okay yeah and that made a big, big difference apparently she had a little bit of tension on one of her, one side of her neck and I highly recommend that too for fussy babies I've heard of people yeah. doing that quite a lot and I'm I think I actually might have had some done when I was a baby I know I know a few chiropractors and practitioners who who do craniosacral work um just because actually when you think about the journey that that baby has had to make you know you've worked really hard as as you know the person giving birth but that baby has had to you know deal with all of the 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 sensations that it's experiencing all the muscular you know squeezing all the turning all the you know there's a lot that they've gone through and actually I think I would pull a muscle if it was me so Mm. you you can't expect them to come out you know without a little bit of you know sign of what they've had to do exactly yeah yeah no exactly and I was so happy I had a girl you can't believe Lucy Mm. I was just so so ecstatic (laughs) that I'd had a girl after two boys and I had secretly always known that I was going to have two boys and a girl Mm. from a long time back after I'd had my boys and they were, you know, growing, and I just knew that there was a girl there for me. I didn't realise I would have her at that age. <laughs> but, um, you know, it, it, and that's the thing, what's meant for you. You know, sometimes we try to control everything and make it happen and do all the right things. And, you know, sometimes it's just that letting go and just saying to the universe, I trust so trusting in the process is trusting in the mystery and what is meant for me. Mm. And sometimes when we hold on so tight, the body constricts, we can feel ourselves tightening and opening and then trusting what is meant for me. Mm. And it's one a of, huge thing. One mm. of the biggest words that I found myself coming back to during my labour, and I, I don't really know how, how or why it happened, but I just kept repeating the word surrender mm-hmm. like it was almost like not in not in a giving my power away kind of surrender in a I have to just let go of everything I have to just let it go and it's what's going to happen is going to happen that I'm letting it go and letting it be um, and I actually found that helped me more than anything else that I'd sort of practiced and thought thought might help so yeah I totally resonate and in that, that surrender that's right and in that surrender the add-on to that is, as we teach it in body birth, I am willing or I have an intention to meet whatever arises. Mm. So we surrender with that intention to meet what life or this experience is showing us, whether that's in pregnancy, birth, mothering, in life, in relationships. 
am I willing to work with whatever shows up? And okay. that's what we do in embodied birth. When we do, and we talk about fear in my online program, I've got three chapters on fear. And we talk about whose fear am I carrying for a start? Can I let it go? But we talk about birthing through your fear, not in fear. There's a very subtle distinction in that. When I birth through fear, I meet my fear and I work with it and I birth through that rather than being in fear. Thinking about that postnatal time that you had with your daughter, I know that you talked a little bit about natural term breastfeeding. Could you mm. talk a little bit about how, how that came about and also your breastfeeding experience with her? Because I know that you kind of did attract some press uh, through breastfeeding, maybe longer than society would deem appropriate. I don't know what the word is. Oh. Yes, very, very air quotey there. Um, mm. But yeah, I'd love, I'd love to hear about that if you are happy to talk about that. Yeah. Oh, well, you know, I'd been a childbirth educator for probably 15 years before Amina was born. So, you know, you learn things over the time. I'm always learning, 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 learning about the microbiome, learning about the sugar in breast milk, learning about the nipples and the saliva of the baby and how the milk changes and so many things we learn as we walk the path. And I'd heard of this term, natural term breastfeeding. And it was to allow the child to feed for as long as they want and not to wean them, let them naturally wean when they are ready. So I thought, look, I've had this incredible conscious conception, conscious pregnancy, conscious birth. Why not conscious breastfeeding on the other side? And so let's see who will this child become. Mm. As Amina says, was I an experiment, mum? I say, <laughs> no, I wanted to be an allowance of your whole journey without interfering, without being patient, as we said before. So, so I decided to do natural term breastfeeding. And she was still breastfeeding at three and a half. And I remember there was Time magazine came out in 2012. I don't know if your listeners remember that. And there was a woman on the front cover of the Time magazine. Her son was standing on the stool and she was still breastfeeding him. Mm. And um, I wrote on an Australian news site, I'm 49. I'm breastfeeding my three-and-a-half-year-old. It's normal. And my phone, my emails, my messages just blew up after that comment. Just wow. a very basic comment, yep. And then I was interviewed. So this was from 2012 to 2016. And I had press from all over the world interviewing me. I was on a Discovery Channel documentary, shocking breastfeeding. I was on many Australian news shows. I was on front covers of magazines. I was in magazines. Our story went viral twice. And I became the second woman in the world to advocate in the media worldwide for natural term breastfeeding. And then there was a group of us and a couple of women from England, actually, some beautiful women. And um, so we've kind of started this whole episode of public breastfeeding, natural term breastfeeding, and we were vilified and shamed and made to be made wrong. But I stood my ground strong and I said, this is our journey, this is normal, this is natural, and this is none of your business, actually. Well, it's not. It just blows, <laughs> it just blows my mind. Like, why does it matter? To, why does right. it matter to anybody other than you and your child? Like you're yes. not hurt, you're not hurting anyone. You're doing it's completely normal and natural. And you're if you and your baby are happy, your child are happy, does it matter? Like who who are you bothering? That's right. That's right. And it's an amazing thing, Lucy. And I still to this day can't quite work it out. What is it about a mother breastfeeding a child? So I, my daughter, when I was in the media, was between three and seven. Mm -hmm. So I stopped breastfeeding, or she stopped. She weaned herself at eight and a half. So, you know, it's not like breastfeeding a newborn. It's once in a while as, it, as they get older. But it's still not saying no. It's just being in that allowance. And, you know, I breastfed until I was 54 and a half, a year post-menopause. So, And it also becomes breast nurturing. Mm. So giving your child a cuddle, you know, giving your child time and attention and love is part of that breast nurturing as well. It's so much and, more um, than just giving a bit of milk to milk, a child. It yes. is, it, it's that yes. it's that deep rooted feeling of I want my mum, isn't yes. it? When you when you curl up and that that have that feeling, 
Mm. And that's what you're providing. You're meeting that that need. Yes. And and people say, oh, she'll be so attached to you. She'll be breastfeeding as a teenager. And she, would she still be breastfeeding when she's 18? People say the most ludicrous and stupid things. And I say back to them, if that's what you think, then you are completely not understanding this journey. You don't even have a right to make a comment for that stupid remark that you've made, you know. So, and you've never been around someone who is breastfeeding an older child, you know. So, and I remember I used to tell this story. One day I was walking down the street and I saw a woman in front of me walking, and her little girl ran up to her and took her hand. She was about five years of age. And the mum just instinctively took her hand as she was walking along the street. Mm-hmm. And the little girl had run up to her, you know, and I thought that's exactly what breastfeeding's like for a five, six, seven-year-old. It's like running up and holding mum's hand, mm-hmm. but it just happens to be running up and being on the breast. And it's that instinctive thing that a mother does without even thinking. Take her hand, you know, bring out the breast and breastfeed. And you can be talking to someone, you can be doing, you don't hardly notice it. But everybody else analyzes it to the nth degree. How many times a day are you breastfeeding? I said, I didn't keep a score. It's not, you know, basketball, baseball. I'm not keeping a score. It's just a natural connection that we have, a nurturing natural connection. And mm. people are so intrigued by it. I find that fascinating. They Absolutely are. fascinating. And, and I think it, it extends to every age group, though. I mean, I, I remember even being kind of, you know, my son being sort of seven, eight months old. And people saying, oh, God, I just have him on a bottle by now. Why are you bothering? You know, I, just, I do think, especially in the UK, actually, we have we have the lowest rate of breastfeeding out of the whole of Europe. And our breasts don't work any differently and our babies aren't any different. So it is it is about the cultural support and how our wider community decides to interact with breastfeeding. Yeah, I think. And it's, the sexualization, too, yeah. Lucy, the sexualization yeah. of the breasts. Yeah. You know, you, your breasts aren't owned by you. I mean, for God's sake, the mammary glands, we're mammals, mammary glands to feed, they produce milk. And that's what we do with our breasts. And that doesn't mean every woman has to do that. And that's the other side of it. People will call you names, you know, breastfeeding Nazi or you're, you're pushing breastfeeding and you're, you're, you know, having a go at women who formula feed. That's not true at all. We never even comment on that. This is what's happened in society now is this mummy wars, you know, all of that competitiveness, judgments. No, it's everything, and we say this in Embody Birth, every voice and every experience is valuable and valid. We support our sisters as one in that freedom. That's such a lovely message, and actually what I tend to like to finish on is asking if you could give one or two pieces of advice to somebody who is perhaps newly pregnant or planning their their pregnancy and birth, what are kind of the key bits of advice or information that you wish that they would know? that you know everything, that you have everything inside of you. The living book is within. Read her. So first and foremost, cultivate the foundations of your own primal knowing. Cultivate your vision. Whether or not it unfolds that way, it doesn't matter. What we are doing is we are centering ourselves in the experience, knowing that we are the expert, and knowing that we have everything within us. That is our womb wisdom. That is your right. That is your baby's right. Nobody has the right to take that from you unless you hand it over. And we don't use the word empower in embodied birth. I don't hold anyone's power. You have your own power. Access and activate your power, and I will inspire you to find that power within Come home to your own heart, your own womb, your own breasts, your own baby, your own body, and your own knowing. That's what I wish for all women. I love it. Yeah. So your plans going forward, what's your, what are your plans? Is it just to kind of continue doing the work that you're doing for as long as you can, or is there anything in the pipeline? Well, I was before COVID. I was traveling the world for the last decade before COVID. I was in China the last three years, twice a year, with my daughter teaching in body birth all over China, doing incredible work. And then boom, COVID happened. Mm-hmm. And it was such a shame for me because I had built up a huge following, a huge reputation. But what it pushed me to was the online world. 
So I now have my online program that's available and my certification program, my Zoom replays of my virtual training certification. So the program and that certification will be able to accredit you as an embodied birth educator. And then you'll be able to certify as an embodied birth educator. And included in that is a one-on-one Zoom with me. So I'm really excited, Lucy, because now I can have my full certification online. It was a four-day training in person, but COVID has pushed me, which I never thought I would do, Um, but it had to be reformatted, obviously, from my in-person training. So now you can do that certification online and we're growing and growing in body birth teachers with all the philosophies that I'm talking about now. That's great. I mean, then it just means that people all over the world can can maybe access yep. things that they wouldn't have been able to kind of pre-COVID. So yes, yeah, yes. some silver linings, I suppose, for these, for these yes, things. Yes, yeah. I'm just world. doing, and I do counselling as well. Like I, I counselled women all over the world. I've done that for quite a lot of years. I've done in person, but I do Zoom counselling as well, mm. especially for women who are coming into that last trimester and getting pulled in all the different directions. They only need one session with me and trust me, they're back on track so you know that's where I bring you back home Mm. to yourself and um and I'm also looking at writing another book because I have my book Dance of the Womb as well Mm. that I released beautiful book that's an ebook you can get that online as an ebook beautiful book world first award-winning book on belly dance for birth and it's just a matter of just keeping on getting it out there getting on out there thank you so so much for sharing well not only your birth stories but you know your wisdom and everything else that you bring to the world so i'm really really thankful thank you thank you lucy thanks to everybody as we say in embodied birth mama stay Wow, that just felt like a really incredible conversation to have been a part of. I am still absolutely in awe of Maha's spirit, her determination, and quite frankly, just the beautiful relationship she has with her own body, as well as the confidence and respect she has for other people who are birthing and feeding their babies too. Maha's life experience could form a whole series just on its own, so it's not hard to feel a bit of a fire in your belly when you hear her speak about her life and her vision for birth. Maha's website is mahaalmusa.com and I'll link to that on Instagram and Facebook so you can easily click on that, where you can find out a bit more information about her birth preparation classes, her certification programme and her book which she mentioned in our chat. That's everything from me this week. Thank you again to Maha for sharing your wisdom with us today. If you liked what you heard in our episode today, please do let me know. I love hearing your feedback. You can connect with me on social media. I am at Real Birth Podcast on Instagram and Real Birth Podcast on Facebook. Or you can email me. It's lucy at realbirth.co.uk. And you can rate, review, subscribe and generally share the show too on whatever platform you listen to. Thank you again for joining me. I will see you next week for another amazing birth story.